Welcome to Can Knock the Shuffle. I am Sean Kantrowitz. I'm a music producer. I'm a TV producer, the host of a hip hop game show called The Questions, and I'm kind of obsessed with how songs get made. As a fan, I've always noticed that artists typically only get asked about the same handful of songs throughout their entire career. It's always made me wonder, what about the stories behind those lesser known songs, the ones that journalists tend to overlook? And in my experience, those unheard stories are the ones that the artists really want to talk about anyway. So that's why Can't Knock the Shuffle exists. I take an artist's entire catalog, I put it in a playlist, throw it on shuffle, and then we talk about whichever songs are randomly selected. We take the interview angle out of the equation and leave it up to the algorithm to dictate which stories get told. And on this episode, I'm joined by Open Mike Eagle, a man who's never shied away from getting personal with his music, so you know we're going to get some good stories today. After he emerged from Los Angeles' Project Blood Collective, the rapper-producer released his first solo album in 2010, and he's been dropping projects at a steady clip ever since. Mike's songs have always incorporated equal amounts of kind of a quirky eclecticism and comedic wit, so it's no surprise that he's been proficient in the worlds of comedy and television. He co-created the comedy and music showcase The New Negroes, first as a live event and later as a show for Comedy Central, which we get into later. He's also deep in this podcast thing. He hosts his own Secret Skin podcast, as well as What It Happened Was, his amazing interview series with the legendary hip-hop producer Prince Paul that he has on his own Stony Island Audio podcast network, which also happens to be the network that this show that you're listening to right now, Can't Knock the Shuffle, calls home. So, shout out to him. My conversation with Mike not only touched on the stories behind some of his songs, but also the existential plight of working as a creative in an industry that's becoming increasingly difficult to navigate through on an independent level. It's great stuff, and I hope you enjoy, so let's dive right into it. Open Mike Eagle, how are you? Welcome, sir. Whoa, feel welcome. Uh, also feel uh, a lot of complicated thoughts and feelings at one time. So it's always uh, difficult to answer how am I, except to say uh, I am many things. I, my feelings contain multitudes. How are you? You know, I was going to say everything you just said verbatim. And I'm, oh, wow. kind, of, I'm kind of shocked that you, you were able to capture the essence. Uh, there's a lot of synchronicity that seems to be going on here. Well, that's good. That's, that's, a, that's a harbinger of good things, I think. Well, we have your uh, catalog here. And, you know, you're somebody... We've had a lot of different guests on the show. I think that compared to uh, some of the other guests that we've had, you might have had a briefer career at this point. But uh, it is very dense. There's a, there's a lot of content. There's a lot of songs, albums, and projects. So uh, I'm excited to hop into it with you. You know, we're, this is all about honoring the catalog and the songs. And you've got the songs, sir. I've got some songs, that's for sure. Song one. And the first song is uh, from the year 2011. And it is actually from a group that you were in called Thirsty Fish. Oh, boy. From the Watergate album. And the song is called Sounds Like Rap. If you can make it sound like you guys are so challenging, dismount your high balance beam so you can satisfy my album needs. And don't go down into the sea like 5,000 leagues. As far as you be from my swimmer's boundaries, the mic had to be on drugs to write alchemy, on dialysis, the mescaline, or snack IVs. And you guys are obviously not the black eyed peas. So till open my eagle, it's pretty good knowing what he rhymes and sings. So I guess I shouldn't end. I apologize, but I would have been more sensitive, except that I've got this wooden skin. I couldn't blend with the man with the bankroll, even with a kango, surrounded by skanks, pointing their shank holes in a mini DV camera. I would say that this sort of uh, 
leans more on the earlier side of your career, correct? Yeah, for sure. Hell yeah, man. Probably recorded that song in like 2009 or some shit. That, what that makes me think of is, is how unsettled on a, a vocal style I was back then when it came to recording. I come into recording from like street corner rapping, which I became very adept at, at doing it thousands of hours all over the country. It doesn't translate as well to the vocal booth as one might assume. And when you say that, you're talking about you're literally just like ciphering, you know, freestyling, just, you know, rapping in a non-studio uh, environment. Yeah, mostly freestyling and, and, and mostly like not on stages, you know, because that's another that's a whole nother style of rapping. There's a style of rapping that's ciphering, there's a style of rapping that's performing, and there's a style of rapping that's recording. I didn't know any of that at the time. Um, and I thought the one skill set would translate to all three, and it did not. So um, a lot of Thirsty Fish is me trying to figure out how I'm going to rap in the studio, along with two gentlemen who were very settled into their own styles. So I often felt very uh, intimidated. But uh, we had a good time, man. We were doing a lot of experimenting. We were doing a lot of... This is our second album. This is you and Dumbfounded in Psychosis. In psychosis, yeah. We, we made up Thirsty Fish. Uh, and we were part of a greater collective called The Swim Team. Uh, inside of Project Blowed. Yeah, our first album is mostly known for just writing the theme too hard because we're called Thirsty Fish and our first album, literally every uh, song was related to fish somehow. Every song, like not a joke. Like everything was aquatic, uh, water related. We absolutely rode that thing into the ground. Uh, the second was called Watergate, but we... Um, luckily had figured out that we should probably expand uh, our concepts to include non-marine uh, subject matter. You were drowning in the content. Oh! That's what, that's what happened. And we came up for air, is what we did. <laughs> this song was produced by a guy named Loden. Loden was a very capable producer that was brought into our world at the time. But what I remember most is really not liking that beat. Because that was the thing, you know, I'm, I'm in a group, I'm collaborating with people, and so this is me sometimes having to figure out a way to get down with a beat that I'm not feeling very much. And this one, I, this was, I was like very anti this beat. Like I was like, I don't like this beat. But the other two guys were like, no, this beat is great. And I think what it is, just me, I'm like a, I'm a melody guy. Like, and this beat is just so about the rhythms and, the, and all the drums and all of that. And, 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 and now I can understand the appeal of it. But at the time, I couldn't see it. So I was just trying to find a way to approach it and we picked the beat already had the sounds like rap sample in it right so um i don't know we just we each took an interpretation on what it meant for something to sound like rap and so i did this this sort of sing rapping thing very project blow influenced and then i bailed on it by criticizing that style myself within the verse within the verse yeah uh very meta and, and then yeah and then i just started Rapid Fast, also Project Blowed uh, influenced. Yeah, definitely in the Project Blowed bag. In hindsight, let's, let's just cast away the fact that everything works out the way that it's supposed to, and we'll just accept that as, as fact. But in, in hindsight, do you feel like you are glad that you began your recording career in a collective? Or do you think that if you could go back again, do you think that maybe you would have waited till later? Because I guess there's sort of two sides to it. You know, you learn a lot in a group dynamic, but also you enter situations where you're rapping on a beat, the first song on an album that your name is attached to, and you don't like it. Well, I did. I did end up liking that song. Let me let me make that 
clear. I, I think the way that we ended up approaching this song was dope and like exciting. <laughs> like how the three of us uh, approached it different ways. But uh, to your point, there is this balance, right? Because what I can remember from that time is being excited about being in a group and, and, and the good thing about being in a group then, especially like because we were coming from this DIY perspective was when we got a show, we were fucking excited. Like one of us would book the show and we'd come back and tell the others we had a show and we would jump through the fucking ceiling every time. So it was like just having somebody to share these small victories with was really dope. Doing a show, getting paid for a show, getting uh, doing a tour. It was like coming into the world like, like a baby and having like siblings to share experiences with. But the other side of that was, yeah, like I'm trying to figure out my own values and I came into the situation older than the other two. Like I had finished college and all that already. Came out here and was working a job uh, before I started rapping. I come into it with like more of a fully formed adult perspective on things and more of an idea of what it is I want to do aesthetically, at least in the long term. So what I would do, I, I would leave these collaborative sessions where we're figuring out how to make our three perspectives work because we're three very different dudes. And then I would run home and write the weirdest, most personal, most soloist solo songs. I have a first album that never came out that was called The Meditation Hustle. And those songs were very reflexive, very reactionary to me being in a group and coming back and making this weird, dark, multi-layered themed closet bedroom album that ultimately I never ended up putting out because I thought it was too dense. But in hindsight, I can definitely see that part of the motivation for making those songs was like trying to figure out my own solo identity in the context of this group. Right. And almost like trying to get it out of your system if you felt like that was being stifled in the in the in the main gig or, you know, the the, the main the main act, I suppose. Absolutely. Song two. It's twenty ten from the unapologetic art rap album. It's our second song. Well, we, we might get into this. You let, you put the word rap in a lot of your song titles. It's true. Uh, um, which I, I have no problem with. I'm not calling you out on it or anything, but uh, the song is called Art Rap Party. Oh, yeah. Pills of the bottle. And right down the hill from a brothel. Sorry, sex addict. Sometimes the party gets cracking. Moving to a soundtrack of REM sadness. We use the term very loosely. We play bid wisp and serve cherry juice drink. Dr. Serigetti has a Burberry mood ring and goes on ramp like an absurd Gary Busey. Ain't no party like an art rap party, cause an art rap party's so smart. Take it with me now. Ain't no party like an art I guess I'm curious to know what is the percentage or split on how satirical this is versus versus actually identifying what uh, was a burgeoning sort of subsection of the genre at the time. Well, I mean, I, and maybe your opinion or view of it has changed in the decades since. But. You know, it's really interesting, man. Um, Cause I'm so far away from the mindset I was in when I was making that kind of thing. Like that song came from like, this, just like this world that I wanted to paint. Like I wanted to will this world into existence. Uh, and I was actually at the time here in LA, I was doing these events called art rap parties that I really wanted to be like, real life 
uh, versions of, of, of the experience happening in the song. Like, I, and I was doing them like at, at art galleries. Like I was just having these events called art rap parties. Um, there was a gallery series down here uh, in LA at the time. And I, the spot was in Chinatown. I can't remember the name of it, but it was this group that used to throw these dope hip hop parties in art galleries. And I'd never had at the time as great of an experience, uh, great of an experience rapping my raps for people as I did in that environment. Cause they used to uh, build me and let me perform in those things. And, and when I did it, I was like, oh shit, this is the wave right here. This is it. Like, this is everything I want to be. This is how I want to be looked at. This is how I want my music to be positioned. This is the world I want to create. Let's, let's expand that a little bit more. It, it plainly spoken, what is art rap in, in the context of this song in that moment? How would you define it if someone had, you know, no context of, of understanding what that even means? Well, so you got to go back to 2010, 2009, and you got to go back to what was happening in rap on the mainstream level first. And so this is like Kanye's really huge. Uh, Little Wayne is really, really huge. I think Drake is just starting. Rick Ross, early Rick Ross. Like Waka Flocka was really big. We're kind of coming out of ringtone. Like there, there's probably yeah. still like remnants of ringtone rap. Yeah, Soulja Boy is big. Soulja yeah. Boy is big. Yeah, like so that's the era. More than anything else, I wanted to make a designation between what was going on at the mainstream level and what like people like me and other people who I was paying attention to what we were doing. I wanted to make some sort of designation between like Waka Flocka Flame and Danny Brown or, you know, Gucci Mane and Serengeti. Uh, at the time, it felt like an important distinction to make because for consumers, you just wanted to have your own lane, I felt like, because there was no differentiation happening. And I was really in my head about, well, rock gets to have all these subgenres. They get to have bluegrass. They get to have art rock. They get to have, you know, garage. They get to have all these different designations. Sure. And to me, the most valuable of those seems to be art rock to me, because that seemed to be the one where, like, if you if you came into that as a consumer, you're thinking, oh, this is just going to be somebody, like, completely going into their own creativity and their own imagination and making what they want to make. Like, where the rules seem to would, would probably seem to fly out of the window and you would get some form of pure expression. And so I felt like that is how I wanted to identify myself and these people who I considered to be my ilk at the time. So I wanted to use, like, have that term be a flag that I flew under. And if, if anybody else wanted to join me, like, they'd be free to. But see, now that was just art rap. And then the art rap party was this whole other thing. Like, <laughs> the art rap party was like this half satirical, half imaginary, half I'd love this to be real event that would take place in this world. It didn't directly depend on what my definition was of art rap as a thing. Obviously, a decade has passed. A lot of these sort of ideas or concepts that an art rap party might represent and that concept that you just got done speaking of sort of has informed a lot of your career and the music that you've made is art rap something that you still sort of wear on your sleeve or i think it's a term that is largely unnecessary now i think the designations aren't aesthetic based anymore because 
Like if you look at a Young Thug album cover, he's wearing a very big dress and he looks like something that belongs in a museum. If you look at, you know, Kanye videos or, or Drake videos and, and the level of artistry that's brought to those things, the filmmaking that's brought to those things and the the subversion of, of, of images that can happen in a lot of those now that wasn't present before. I think the mainstream has appropriated a lot of the artistic aesthetic that I was trying to connect to, and not in a bad way. It's actually a good thing, I think, because uh, for, for younger rappers entering the game, I think it's, I think image-wise, it's freer than it's ever been, even if the content is a little stagnant sometimes. Image-wise, a young Black man can feel free to wear as many dresses and skirts and, and, and makeups and anime cosplay and, you know, like all of the stuff that was not allowed 10 years ago in the mainstream is fully embraced now, at least visually. And that makes this designation of art rap, I think, a lot less necessary. So I don't use it as much anymore. What I try to find a way to explain to people now is more like the differences in economics. Because to me, that's the important thing that actually um, informs the music in a way that's not often understood by people. If you make a rap album in 2020, you don't have a lot of resources to make it. And if it's any sort of success, it's kind of a miracle. And I think the, 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 des the designation now has to be based on access to resources. When you look back on that album, the unapologetic art rap, first of all, I guess I would ask, do you revisit a lot of your work? Uh, you know, I listened to your uh, episode of Merge, and I do the exact same thing he does, uh, where before something is out, I listen to it a million times. And then once it's out, I kind of let it go. I don't really tap into it much anymore. At that point, it stops feeling like it belongs to me. And it's like, on release day, especially once I'm done doing interviews about it, my opinion about it doesn't matter anymore. It's, it's public record. Like, exactly. Yeah. It is. Uh, and so I often, I go from, you know, knowing every nook and cranny to an album to not listening to it for years. I haven't sat and listened to Unapologetic Art Rap in probably five, seven years. Oh, I ended up having to listen to it because I reissued it through Vinyl Me Please uh, two years ago. And it was delightful and it was fucking horrifying at the same time. What was delightful? Um, the whimsy, the, the just naked whimsy and, and, and fearlessness in terms of not knowing what I was doing vocally, but being unafraid to try anything. I'll try anything. I was really pleased with that. I was pleased to remember that part of myself that didn't feel like things needed to be perfect. I just needed to be trying shit. The terrifying part was that I was a slave to four bar syllable patterns, a slave. Like every four bars on that album had to end in the same rhyme scheme. Like I couldn't say a thing without saying three more things that had the same syllable rhyme. So, so for, for those who might not understand, you're saying that like at the end of a line or the end of a bar, the last four syllables would rhyme with the last four syllables on the next line. But if I, if I said something that, 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 that rhymed with the word frequency, right? Let's say that was my first line. Then the second line had to be something with speak to me. And the third line had to be something with uh, decency and so on and so forth. And I, I could not break that pattern. Hmm. I just couldn't. Like... There was something about that particular type of pen gymnastics that was all I wanted to do at that point and all that I felt uh, was of worth. 
Who were you looking to at the time as sort of the architect or, or somebody who was helming that style that obviously got you so enthused with it that you, like you said, became sort of like beholden to it? Uh, well, Eminem was real big for that and in introducing that to me uh, as, a, as a younger rapper. And he was influenced by the outsiders who are also very influenced, influential on me in terms of also writing syllables like that. Thurston Howard Third was big on that. Doom was huge on that too. Uh, yeah. Doom, Doom, between like Doomsday and like Victor Vaughn, he really got into like tight, tight, tight writing. He was another one who like all the syllables. And, and but my slavishness to it was 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 an outlier, even amongst <laughs> all of those people. I was really, I, I, it was too much. But you could say, you know, you kind of have to sometimes really master a style. And now it, it I, I would imagine that it would be reflexive in a way that if you had to pull it out now, you've done it so many times that it might feel effortless or seamless in that for way. For sure. For sure. It, it, I could do it in my sleep now. <laughs> <laughs> but just don't feel the need to do it all the time. Exactly. It's not the only thing in my tool belt now. At that time, I think it literally was. That's all I had. Song three. We're in 2018 now. It's from your What Happens When I Try to Relax EP, and the song is called Single Ghosts. Like this is a weird way to spend one's afterlife, but yo, I ain't judging. We're just talking, but everything about this feels so haunted. Pardon me, I'm emotional. Excuse me if I get too personal, because I ain't never been with a ghost before. I ain't never been with a ghost before, yeah. I done seen many dosy dos but I don't know the steps in this ritual, because I ain't never been with a ghost before. I ain't never been with a ghost before. Be gentle, it's the first of me, and I'm a little scared, baby, in a nursery, and you were Hip-hop's first song about ghosting? Is it? Probably. Probably the first one where the whole song's about it. I always feel like ghosting, you know, the the act of, of ditching someone. I have always felt that ghosting as a term is just a really... It's a shitty practice, and but even shittier is that we've put a cute name on what is ultimately really just terrible behavior to do to somebody. True. That's all we do, though. We put, you know, we turn everything into euphemisms and try to make it cute. But yeah, it's an awful thing to do to somebody, I feel like. And, and it's weird how our society just like... Well, you know what? I think two things started happening at the same time. And now that I'm thinking about this, I'm wondering if they're related. Ghosting and... Uh, unsolicited dick pics. I feel like both of those things kind of arose in society at the same time. And I wonder if there's a relationship there. The devil and the angel on your shoulder or something? Yeah. <laughs> I just, I don't know. There's, there's, there's some, some, some force balance to that where like if a, if a person can be the recipient of an unsolicited penis, then they also feel licensed to not tell somebody why they're not going to speak to them anymore. Like there's, there's some, I wonder if there's some psychological relationship there. That feels justified, though I would say that not everybody who ghosts has first no, no, no. received and, a and I don't, Right, and, I don't, and I'm not, yeah, I don't think it's a one-to-one thing in any means. I just mean like as, as a societal force, as, a, as an occurrence. Yeah. We don't have to get into like the specifics of it, but what, what sort of led you to want to dedicate a song to this? Like I didn't, I didn't really get it. Like I used to hear about it all the time. But I didn't really get it. And then um, my barber ghosted me. Oh, wow. It hurt, man. It hurt. Like, it hurt. One, like, one day we had an appointment, and he just never showed up for it. And then I didn't hear from him about it until, like, two days later. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
it was, it was felt fucked up. And I was like, oh, this is what that is. And then I, I like wrote the song like shortly after that. Barber inspired. Barber inspired. Not what I was expecting. Yeah, no, totally. Totally. But you know, that's how that's how I got it. I always say that I think that we're gonna look back on cell phones the way that, you know, doctors now look back on cigarettes in like the fifties wow. you know, like you think they're gonna give us big fat tumors? I don't know if it's necessarily gonna be tumors, but I think it'll I do think it's safe to say that they'll look back and be like, oh, the way that we promoted this and didn't really have all of the science on or the the science that we did have on it and that we, you know, didn't share, it was just completely reckless and irresponsible, you know? Yeah, yeah, but that's mostly what we do. We allow um, convenience to motivate um, what we embrace in society without thinking twice about what the fuck the cost is. You shot a video for this song as I well. I directed that video too, but that that was a fucking nightmare. That whole story is a nightmare. The story of the video? Yeah, man, because I didn't want. I wasn't going to do it. I knew a guy who was uh, in in charge of the marketing department, or or he had a line on funding from a marketing department from a company. They wanted to get videos made with their technology so that they can promote their technology. So they were giving out budgets to make videos. So I'm like, oh, okay, so basically like free video. Which, you know, that's cool. I, I never, never problem with that. Uh, so I do it. And then the company just stops paying all their bills. They ghosted you. They did. They stopped. They, 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 they did. And they stopped paying all their bills. So, like, we had paid up front for all of this stuff. Overpaid. You know, like, we, we had spent past the budget. I mean, that, and that's not, of course, not their fault. And I wasn't looking for them to pay any overages. But definitely to pay the part that they were supposed to pay. So it ended up being this just long fight with them that when that fight was finally over, the video was like super late. And I don't know, like I look at it now like, oh, so I actually ended up spending money uh, for a video that I was never planning to have and having like a month long headache about this company that wouldn't pay what they said they were going to pay. Yeah, music videos are weird as well, especially particularly for indie artists, but also particularly in the age that we live in now, because the, I think a lot of us are operating from this stance of remembering how videos were a really big moment. You know, I remember watching MTV. I remember watching The Simpsons one night and like they premiered the Michael Jackson black and white oh, video yeah, right after The huge. Simpsons. That was, that was, that was like a moment. It's interesting, you know, videos are more ubiquitous than ever now uh, in our time and in our consumption of them, but it also... I guess it's not unlike any other kind of media where it sort of feels like you have to have them, but it's also not necessarily the moment that, that it was. Well, you know, I, I, when my career started, there was a serious sense that it didn't even make sense to make a video. At that point, you know, MTV stopped playing videos. Uh, so there was no place really on television to, to, to have a video. And YouTube wasn't really established yet as like a place where you put things like that. So, like, there was this dead zone. It was just like, okay, we have this marketing, but, we, you know, what the fuck do we even do with it? There's no reason to have a video right now. So now, like, YouTube is fully, fully indoctrinated into our society. We all know we have it, and we all know that's where we go to watch things. But, like, I'm start, what I'm starting to sense now, it used to feel very hmm, democratic on YouTube, where I used to feel like... If I had the right music video, like, the, you know, quality-wise, and spent a good 
couple of days promoting and I can have a decent view count. Now I feel like it's different and I don't really know how. I feel like somehow YouTube has made it more difficult for people to see things or something, but I, I don't know why they would do that. Right. So I don't know. It just, it feels weird now. Now it feels like uh, where, where it felt at, at one point, like if I put it on my platform and told everybody about it, a, a decent number of thousands of people would go look at it. Now I feel like even though I have more fans, YouTube seems like more of a restrictive platform. Uh, I feel like I get more burn off of putting a clip of a video on Twitter <laughs> than I do on YouTube. It's really weird. I, I don't I don't um I don't understand how it all works. I feel like um the robots have changed the rules and not really told the rest of us. It's the algorithm, baby. But yeah. hey, you already know I feel we can't knock its shuffle. So <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not gonna badmouth it too much because Yeah, you can't you can't just can't diss the robots on this show. You're exactly. Right. They they get a pass. They get a free pass. Even more recent from your Comedy Central show, The New Negroes, uh, and the song is featuring Fonte Coleman. It is called Woke As Me. Take it from you. I wear him drawers and biodegradable shoes. I know the planet fucked up and how it got that way. I only flush my toilet once every goddamn day. I'm fucking woke. You say you woke, bro? I say supposedly. You ain't nowhere near as woke as you supposed to be. Man, you telling jokes. Yeah. Fool, you so asleep. Yeah. Bro, you might be woke. You just ain't woke as me. Uh, trying to beat me in a woke off and get broke off. No jokes. You don't want no smoke. With this woke time broke all your neighborhood. Uh, the New Negroes was a live comedy showcase and music showcase that you and Baron Vaughn did in Los Angeles. Began to tour it sold it to Comedy Central or produced with Comedy Central to turn it into a television show. I always thought it was kind of ill that you basically, at least from an outside perspective, got a company like Comedy Central to help you make a bunch of dope singles for an album. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, going into it, knowing, you know, part of what we sold in that show was that there'd be, you know, uh, a stand-up show with original music on every episode. Right. And so... You know, my thought was, let me not just make a bunch of over Mike Eagle songs. Like, let me see what kind of collabs we can get, what kind of guest stars we can get. And, like, and, and, and also to make music that, from my vantage point, was like more palatable, like more ready for mass consumption than, like, than, than shit that just checks all the boxes for me. What was that experience like, you know, for somebody who has made unapologetic art rap for lack of a better term you know do, were there a lot of concessions that had to be made no nah, i mean because at the end of the day it was still my choices you know there was a plan there was a game plan in place let's get banging beats let's get great collaborators let's make songs that are speaking to topics but in a humorous way which is something i've been doing all my career anyway so it wasn't me having to stretch really at all and i think the fucking results were like dope but man, I, I tell you what, like, I learned a very serious lesson when it came to that about like, there's this question of can, can music be successful without the help of the music industry? And in this case, I learned that that could not happen. Uh, like I have, you know, we had songs with Lizzo, MF Doom, Fonte. Um, Method Man. Yeah, Method Man. Uh, like we put together something that on paper should have been a, a, a clear blow up, like a clear, like 
success. And I think if you listen to the songs, they all sound good. And, and they're funny too. Like, they're, yeah. they're very topical and they're very funny. And but yeah. they're not. It's not joke rap. I mean, right. it, it, it. You know what I mean? Like I know exactly what you mean. It's not a little dicky. It's not. It's not making fun of. You know what I mean? It's not. It is. It is respectful to the form, as bars in every song. But yes, it's also. Uh, done in a humorous way, and yeah, man, this shit, this shit did not mo- like it didn't it didn't happen, damn it, it damn near did not happen. And I, what I understand now is that for us to make those songs, Viacom needed to own everything. They need to own everything, beats, lyrics. They need to own it all. Mm. But what that means is, if if we want Lizzo on a song that Viacom owns instead of Atlantic then Lizzo has to submit a waiver for, for, uh, to us that Atlantic has signed off on saying that it's okay that Lizzo does this verse that we don't own on this thing that you own. But since that is the case, that means Atlantic will not help at all. Right, because they have no stake in it. They, they have- will not participate in this process at all. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's the same for every artist who we had who's on a label like once that waiver came to us, what that meant was you were on your own. Which is so wild because you would just think that the success of Lizzo in a platform, and I'm not trying to single her out, but the, the success of any artist, you know, that has a following and progression in their career in one lane, hey, this is them being on a television show. Even if they didn't own that song, you know, it's like the this, this success of that song is going to spill over and bleed over into the rest of the artist's career, I would think. That's what we thought, too. That's certainly the thought we came into it with. And that is just not how anybody in the music industry saw it. And and I think another thing it's reflective of is the kind of diminished view of broadcast cable right Right. now. It just doesn't have the same cachet as it used to. So if you're Atlantic, you're not necessarily tripping that Lizzo has a song on the Comedy Central show or has or appeared in it or acting in the music video. And it, it, they barely care because if it were fucking Hulu or Netflix or something, it might be a different conversation. But it's Comedy Central and it's Viacom and it's... Kind of the older guard. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's just not as culturally relevant as it once was. And I, and I think that, you know, a lot of the labels were looking at it that way. So when it came to the actual composition of the songs... Uh, and we'll get into this one specifically, but just uh, uh, on a broader sense, how did you sort of piece it together? Did you write the concept and sometimes, you know, write ideas for the guest artists or did you present them with the concept and have them run with it? Yeah, I would. Uh, I wrote, I had to write all of my parts first. Like all of my parts had to be done before we started shooting episode one. Mm. So all of the beats were picked, all of the hooks were written and all of my verses were written. And, you know, we, we made, try to make the concept very clear and communicate with the artists and we give it to them and they put their verse on and send it back. Fonte is probably one of my favorite MCs. He's an, an incredible artist in many, many senses. And that, uh, that song, I think, might be, because of that, might be one of my favorite from the collection of the, you know, music videos, the singles that you guys shot. The music video casts you guys in a barber shop and you're sort of having a woke off. Uh, what was, do, do you have any memories or sort of reflections on that shoot? Yeah, because uh, uh, once again, just like all of my song, all of my verses had to be written, all of the video concepts had to be written ahead of time, too. So we spent a lot of time in the writer's room of the show crafting out these storylines for the videos. One interesting thing that happened in all of them was when we shot them all, <laughs> 
the note that came back from Comedy Central was that like each video needed to be a sketch, but this was after we had kind of already wrote them just as videos. Hmm. So we kind of had to go back and add a beginning, a middle, and an end to each one of these video treatments. So, so there's almost a story within the visual exactly. So we wrote the video with just the barbershop and the, um, the fighting game, but then we had to go back and write that initial dialogue with being Fonte, which there was, there was a lot, that was a longer scene and we ended up cutting way down. Yeah. And, and the thing about incorporating the fighting and graphics into the video as us in the chairs was, was like a late addition to the, to the writing concept too. All the, all these songs are sort of satirical. It, it seems like a very necessary commentary on the fact that we have a lot of performative wokeness in, in, in our current time. Yeah, man, that's what, that's, that's all we, that's exactly what the song was uh, trying to underscore. How like, yeah, wokeness is great, but we often find ourselves in these competitions where we have, we're trying to tell somebody else they're not being woke in the right way. So far. Next song is from 2016 from the Hella Personal Film Festival album that you did with Paul White. And the song is called Leave People Alone. Wash your hands, make no demands, try to mind your own business. Wash your hands, make no demands, try to mind your own business. Even cold people leg her up And Lady Luck gave a fuck what you making up Sometimes pain's even smaller than the paper cut And while you all up in her face, she done faced enough In LA, people judge you if you take the bus And rich folks say, hey, come to space with us What? Yo You should be polite, you big dummy Shut the fuck up and let that Kind of feels like a good follow-up to what we were just speaking about In terms of telling people and casting judgment and direction on people do you sort of see that as cut from a similar cloth? Yeah, kind of, kind of. I don't even remember what I was thinking about. I was, in, I was in England when I wrote that song. I had to write that album really fast, like while I was on a tour of Europe for the first time, because I recorded that album with Paul White, a British producer. It was really dope. We had like limited studio time. So like while I'm doing the shows in Europe, I'm having to like write songs, like while I'm, you know, on trains going from, you know, England to Germany or whatever the hell. Like, I'm trying to just figure out what the fuck to write about. And I don't even remember what it was that, like, made me write that one. How long were you in Europe? It was, like, three weeks, I think. Was this something that you planned before you went on the tour? Yeah, we had to to have it all kind of lined up. And what that meant was by the time the tour was over, I had to have all the songs written so that we could at least demo them in a studio together. Even if I refined them later, like, we kind of had to have it all mapped out. Is that very stressful? That sounds it very stressful. Sucked. Yeah, it was. I mean, like, I'm I'm happy that it turned out like it did. I think there was only like two songs from that original batch that we didn't we, we didn't end up using. But yeah, that's not my preferred way to write anything. Is is to not have time. Did you at least have a lot of the beats and production from Paul prior to getting there, or was it sort of presented to you? Was he working on it while you were out there? No. Well, he he had sent me a big pack of like basic beats like but like like foundational loops and like sketches. Just sketches exactly sketches is the best way to put it and so i'm writing to those things and trying to find concepts from the way that these sketches make me feel and then bringing those songs into the studio when i was out there and i started to refine them from there am i correct in feeling like you feel a little disconnected to this album no actually um i feel a little disconnected to that song got it because that's a song that I don't have the greatest 
visceral memory of where I was when I thought to write those things. Oh, I do remember that I wrote that song in an Airbnb in Vienna, though. I do remember that, but I don't remember why. I remember, I remember why I was in the Airbnb, but I don't, sure. remember, I don't remember why I wrote that song in that Airbnb. I was like, there was a lot of drugs on this trip. <laughs> Just woke up in an Airbnb in Vienna and wanted people to leave me alone. So I was like, shit, leave everybody alone. Hella Personal Film Festival. Obviously, I, that was sort of callous of me to say that you're disconnected from an album that's called Hella Personal. <laughs> but, you know, what did that album sort of represent to you in terms of your development as a writer and continuing to develop your perspective? It, it sort of seems unnecessary in a way for you to have to label something as, you know, I feel like all the Open Mic Eagle albums are are Hella Personal. I know you're not, you didn't do that as a way to distinguish this, but, you know. You know, that's the thing, man. Most of my albums, I, I, I find that, like, any one of my albums could have been called dark comedy you know any right. one of my albums could have been called hell the personal film festival and most of them could have been called unapologetic art rap you know like that's that is kind of a, a thing that ends up ringing true with me for a lot of my titles is that they're transferable but this one my my memory of it was feeling like each one of these things was a little scene in my head like and a lot of times i was a character in these scenes and some of them were informed by real life and some of them were just informed by my imagination but the film festival part of that title is what really distinguishes this album. Every one of these songs to me felt like a little movie. It's just that that song, I can't remember the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we've all, we, we have a bunch of those in our lives. You know, you'd be like, hey, have you seen this? You're like, no, I haven't. And you sit down to watch it. And then like 15 minutes in, you're like, oh, I have seen this. Yeah, yeah. I, I know this one. Song six. This is from a collaborative album that you did with Serengeti in 2015 under the Kavanaugh moniker. The album was called Time and Materials, and the song is called Overland. Land. Why you so demanding? Why you so demanding? Why you so demanding? Why you so demanding? So demanding, underhanded, underpinnings, got a hundred winnings and many losses. I be flossing my teeth, I got no beef, I am a Christmas wreath. I miss the days, I miss the days And I miss the minutes and I miss my spinach And I put these kisses in it, not chocolate Watch my rocket ship, I am apocalypse Inside a nerd, no one's after him Shatterstar, back to Zanzibar Rapping in your daddy's This is, uh, this feels a little loose It is very loose, that is a freestyle I, I thought it was Yeah, com- complete, that was completely a freestyle um, Yeah man, that, that album was made in a week in a very like, in a manner unlike I've produced anything else ever. And I did all the beats too. So I took time after to like add production to the beats because they all started kind of started as loops of like my favorite songs and shit. <laughs> um, so like that, that's- Like King, actual samples, you mean? Yeah, like, yeah, okay. that's, that's a King Missile loop. And King Missile is like the most college rock band ever. And Getty's Getty's hook on that. One. I ain't got to die, but I'm working. I love that shit. Um, and he wrote his verse for that one, and I freestyled mine. That's that's the only thing I freestyled on the album. But like that whole album was approached in a freestyled manner. Like even the things I wrote, I didn't spend a lot of time on. Which is weird because it's kind of a concept album too, right? Yeah, but the concept we just kind of threw that on. Like it's, <laughs> it's not like 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 the concept. 
the concept even informed our slapdash approach to it. Like the concept is me and this guy, we work in this building and we sneak away and we make these songs. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's not informing. Super abstract. <laughs> right. And, and it's, it's like stating that we didn't spend a lot of time on this. Like we did these while we were on break, like doing maintenance. You know what I mean? Right. But it's interesting though, because you do strike me as somebody who does you're you're a deep thinker. You mm-hmm. are somebody who puts a lot of thought into the albums, the projects. You know, yeah, dick, dick pics and ghosting. You know, like <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Like it's it, there definitely is still like a lot of like conceptualism that you know I think is applied to a lot of this. So this is sort of you just a little more off the rails, I guess. Oh yeah, for sure. Because yeah, that's because that's the spirit of the project. I have a lot of fans that didn't like it, and Getty has a lot of fans that didn't like it either. I think it underperformed by almost every metric. But the people who love it really do love it because it's just an energy thing. And I, and I often, I don't often make music with an approach that's just informed by energy. Like you say, I usually do put a lot of thought. And this was just thinking less and seeing what happened. And, and you know, then me and Getty's energy just kind of went forward and, and took that project where it went. We started the conversation talking about you working in group dynamics uh, early on. Now that you've done a lot of solo material, does working in groups have an allure or an escape maybe that you wouldn't get on a solo album? Yeah, in some senses. Uh, and I think it's just always great to have context. It's always great to have context. It's always great to like collaborate, especially with artists you respect and like kind of show that you as a as a recording artist are not a singular entity, but you represent like a scene. That's that's always really, really valuable and important. Collaboration wise, like I'm, I'm not always in a rush to do it, but with somebody like him, like I've known Serengeti for 20 years, you know what I mean? Like, and I really love his work. So like I, I enjoy collaborating with him in a way that I wouldn't with a bunch of other people. Soul Seven. The last song is from 2015. You're a special episode uh, of Open Mic Eagle EP. And it's another raps song. It's raps for when it's just you and the abyss. Mm-hmm. I'm so right brained, I can't grow an even beard. I wonder if I balance shit out with things seem as weird. They say it is above as it is below. My skin is so hot, but my heartbeat is 10 below. In the cold fabric day, dreaming about a center fold. I answer only questions. It's easiest to pretend to know. It's hard being brick and mortar creatures. My thoughts have to fit in phones and through computer speakers. Was pretty geeked about my LA Weekly feature. I showed it to my dad, my barber, and my piano teacher. I'm trying to get discovered like an actor, bat the cookie face. This one definitely feels like it is in the abyss. Yeah, man, I wrote it on an airplane and I was high off of edibles. I was floating when I wrote that song. Literally through the air. Yeah, like. Yeah, and then also my brain on top of yeah, it was a lot, a lot of floating floats on floats, on floats on floats. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, man, that was just that was just like vibing. But it's funny because earlier we talked about me being a slave to rhyme schemes. I was scheming out in that one too. Uh, it was a little bit of the old school. Everybody has their own definition of barn out, their own kind of default. Like this, when I'm ready to just rap, this is how it's gonna come. That's like that scheming is just a part of my DNA and and a song like that where I'm just like writing, writing, writing. I, you know, I end up coming back to that in a fashion. It's less of an enslavement than it was before. It's more just like this is the sharpest tool on my belt. I'm going to use it, but I'm going to use it with more intention. And in conjunction with the other tools that you've sort of acquired, what, what part do you think that this project in this era 
played in your career? Well, it's interesting, man. There was a time in my in my career where after every album I put out an EP, mostly of songs that didn't make the album. And this is kind of another example of one of those. But the biggest song of my career is on that EP, a song called Ziggy Starfish. Um, again, I often I often can't see what it is that's going to be like the big thing. Um, I took that song off of Dark Comedy because it didn't fit on there for me. Ziggy, you're talking about? Yeah, Ziggy. And I, I think neither this rap song might have wrote after that. And our Dark Comedy Late Show was an answer to Dark Comedy Morning Show, which is on now. But then I think there's six songs on there. Aside from Abyss Raps and Dark Comedy Late Show, I think all four of the other songs at, were at one point on Dark Comedy. And I, and I took them off to make this, this EP. Because at one point, Dark Comedy was a story album. It was this really weird story about me doing a show and then I was crashing in somebody's crib, but the after party was there too. And then I didn't want to hang out, but I was kind of high and drunk. And me and everybody I was on, I was on tour with decided to just go ahead and start driving to the next town overnight. And then fucking driving stone and crash. And it was this whole thing. And, and a couple of the songs that are still on Dark Comedy referenced that, but that's like, a, it's like cut content shit. But then, yeah, a lot of, then some of the songs ended up on the uh, special episode EP and Ziggy Starfish of those ended up being like the biggest song of my career. Did you really show your LA Weekly feature to your dad, your barber, and your piano teacher? Yep, the three of them. And what were their reactions? Dad was happy. Barber was nonplussed. Piano teacher was over the moon. He couldn't, he he thought that shit was unbelievable. He thought that shit was unbelievable. But this is also like, you know, I'm a, 36, 37-year-old rapper coming in for piano lessons. You know, he's already looking at me sideways to begin with. But he's, this guy literally writes letters to the editor for the sports section of the LA Times. Oh, so this was a huge deal for him. Yeah, and his letters get published sometimes, and he hangs his hat on that shit. He's a newspaper dude. Wow. So when I showed him that shit, he was like, what? Yeah, he was, he, he was over the moon. So, you know, when you look back at your career, you know, I, I was, <laughs> I do a lot of prep for these when I, when I begin to, you know, get ready to have these conversations and, you know, go through the music after they get randomly selected. As I said before, you definitely wear your heart on your sleeve for a lot of these, but I don't think that there are many artists who really epitomize like the, the working class struggle of what it means and the economics of being a, an artist in these times and, and occupying the type of space that you occupy, has your opinion on that changed or evolved throughout, you know, the songs that we just talked about and throughout your catalog? How has that vantage point changed? I mean, I think my spots changed and I think the game board itself has changed a lot, but that's what I was saying. Like where I, I came into this thing thinking that it was all about point of view and all about, uh, aesthetic and all about creativity. Um, and I thought that that was going to be the thing that differentiated me and that was going to be my calling card. But the game changed to where there's creativity everywhere. And so all the while this evolution is happening, one thing is staying the same and that is that like the industry is a game of resources. And like that is the thing that separates the music industry from the people who I fuck with from like, you know, Samus and Milo and Billy Woods and JPEG Mafia, like, and, and the long line of DIY people we come from. I think now more than ever, 
there's just this really big gap between the ruling class <laughs> in music and and the working class. And I and, and you know, it's it's a thing that reflects economics and society. Um I think we're getting to a point where it might be impossible to do this independently. Like I think we're getting there. I, I I'm afraid for it. I'm afraid um for what the next generation of of artists who don't want to make the stuff that is being made in the mainstream and doesn't have a lot of money to make really slick videos or hire marketing consultants or do radio camp. Like, I don't, I don't know what they're going to do. Just to provide another perspective here, and I wouldn't even call it devil's advocate, but like, it seems that in many ways, the sort of like mainstream trope is, is not as prevalent as it was maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago. It seems like there are a lot of like sort of dissenting, not dissenting voices, but just voices of different perspectives. I, I think there's a couple voices of different perspectives. I think there's a Tyler. I think there's AJ Cole. But I think those people are positioned to be the entire alternative, just like the two of them. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and, 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 you know, what I'm saying is like there's a... There's an army of people who, who have things in common with the Tyler and J. Cole. And, and in some cases, like take J. Cole, for instance, you know, J. Cole's supposed to be like the thinking man in the mainstream. And I think for my purposes, he doesn't raise the bar very high for that. Like, it's, it's just it's relative to everything else that's going on. He's the smartest kid in remedial math. Yeah, like and, and I'm, I'm I am I am constantly wondering how to get people to think outside of the box of that math class because it's it clearly exists but when we have a conversation about music they only talk about what's happening inside the box uh you know and and it even goes through history like remember they used to do the vh1 hip-hop honors yeah and they used to make a big deal out of celebrating classic hip-hop artists and it was great but it was only celebrating the artists who had had hits the biggest artist. Well, it's 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 the winners write history. You know, like you when you look at I, the dope thing about what I've always loved about hip hop in in general is that you look at the artists and the records that they sampled. The sounds of 1977 that you could glean from how media covers it and how like the encyclopedia or whatever version of the encyclopedia we refer to is going to be completely different than the sounds of records that were released in 1977 that are then sampled later. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. wait, like we thought that 1977 was just these three artists. But you look at all these records, like there was a lot of crazy shit that was happening then. Yeah, and, and to me, it ain't so much the winners write the history as like the record companies write the history. I don't know, man. I, I, I think there just has to be some way to talk about music in terms of cultural importance apart from sales. Yeah. There's got to be, and I, and I think like until we find a way to do that, like we're, we're not, we're like doing ourselves a disservice in how we think about, talk about music. Like there's, there's a lot of really great underground records, you know, from 88 to 94, 95 or whatever. They just like, they don't even, they, they're not on Spotify because there's the sample clearance issues or this, this small label, you know, they didn't survive or and like, but they're important records. There has to be a way to discuss the merits of a record being made that samples other work that has that talk about the value of that aside from 
the violation of copyright. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just got, and we haven't figured out how to do that yet. You know, like there, there needs to be some, some type of desig- designations that come from some other area of society other than just the capitalist side that decide what's important to us now. And, and I think that's the through line through the copyright stuff, through the hip hop honor stuff and who we honor in terms of our, uh, our, our legacy artists and what's happening right now. We're like, it is clear to me that the conversation is relegated only to people who make money. Right. And like, I don't, I think existentially that's not good. <laughs> you know, um, like I, I look at Joe Budden and Charlemagne having a pissing contest about uh, ownership and shit. I own my shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. and, and, and the only reason that I'm to understand that I am not part of that conversation is because I don't make enough money. You know what I mean? Which, which also is a function of not having the reach and not having the audience, uh, which is very fair. Right, because if you have the money, then you're able to purchase the well, reach. No, I, well, no, I, I would say this. I would say if I had the audience, that would create the money that puts you in the conversation. Like, True. That way. So I'm not sitting here saying that, I'm not, I'm not saying that, it's not a, that that's not important, like the audience size and the reach and the, and, and the market share. I'm not saying that's not important. Uh, I'm just saying it's weird that it feels like that's the only thing that's important. Yeah. Well, look, I'm committed to at least making some podcasts that help shine a light on that. Yo, and, and, and I'm telling you, that's, that's really, that is really one of the aims of me having this network is to do that because I feel like, you know, like I, I, I had, I, I did the Prince Paul show and I, you know, it was, came, from, came from me telling a corporation how great this would be, doing a demo of it with them hearing the greatness of it and them telling me it ain't worth shit because they can't sell ads on it. They don't think they can because they don't understand. Right. You know what I mean? And like, I feel like when we have these sorts of conversations, I think this is going to be a back doorway for us to create a lot of that value is to show how valuable these conversations are to people who are interested, not only interested in the music, but interested in learning more about music. Ding! (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the logo. Hey, nothing wrong with a shameless plug at the end there, right? Well, we didn't exactly solve the plight of the modern indie artist, but we definitely had a great conversation that I hope you guys enjoyed. Open Mike Eagle's latest album, Anime, Trauma, and Divorce, is out now, and you can learn all about it and all the other things that he's got going on by visiting mikeeagle.net. Be sure you subscribe and leave a review on this podcast. I've been told that if I get enough great reviews, my whole life will change for the better. And honestly, who doesn't want to see that happen? Who should we have on the show next? If you've got requests or suggestions, hit me up either at Sean Dammit, that's S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T on Twitter or Instagram, or you can send me an email at can'tknocktheshuffle at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Sean Kantrowitz, and you can't knock the shuffle. I don't know if that works, but that's what we're going to do for now. Peace. Oh,